children out, children's church. say it was a bass player that was messing everybody up this morning. <laughs> All right. So we're uh, going through the book of Galatians, verse by verse. And so this morning, we are in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Father, there is so much in these six verses that we ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the historical context and the ramifications for us today that, Lord, that the gospel needs to be preserved in its purity and in its simplicity. And, Father, as we look at this passage, we understand, God, that the gospel is not just the power to save, but the gospel is the power to perfect. And the same means that is used to save us is the same means that you will use to perfect us. And God, it's hard for us to understand that because we live in such a merit-based society. So God, I pray that we will have your mind, that we will apply these passages today that will make us more like your son and reflect what it truly means to have a relationship with you. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been going verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And we know that the gospel has been assaulted that the gospel has been 
changed, altered, and the slightest alteration to the gospel completely deludes its message. Paul marveled that the Galatians had moved so quickly from God who called them by grace to another gospel. And he says that other gospel isn't really a gospel at all. So if we change anything about salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, and we receive it by faith alone, it is a different gospel. It's a different message. Paul, throughout this letter, has been defending his gospel as Christ's gospel, that he didn't collaborate with any of the apostles. In fact, in chapter 1, he goes through this long litany of explaining where he went, where he spent time. All the other of, of the apostles he had no interaction with, that they didn't add anything to him, and they didn't detract anything from him. In fact, when he did meet them, they had to acknowledge that he had a gospel that was the exact same gospels as theirs, and they extended him the right hand of fellowship and said, you go to the Gentiles and you take this gospel to them. And Peter, you've got the same gospel, but you take it to the Jewish people. And then in the rest of chapter 2, Paul explains how he had to confront Peter face to face. And that must have been a difficult Sunday morning at that church. (laughs) Can you imagine a public rebuke of one of the apostles in the middle of a church service? So that was, I'm sure, awkward. And he needed to do that because what Peter had done was done publicly, and it was done in a way that it sent the wrong message about what the gospel was. He says, if you, being a Jew, and you can't even live by the Old Testament law, how is it that you're going to compel and constrain Gentile converts now to abide by the law that we Jews couldn't even keep? And then at the end of this chapter, he says that the law is useful, but it's a tool to die to. All the law can do is point me to an utter failure of abling to live up to God's righteous standard. And so Paul makes this really profound statement. He says, I, through the law, died to the law. And so last Sunday we looked at what that meant to be dead to the law and how we go through the law in order to die to it. So the law, it shows us that sin is imputed to us. Where there is no law, sin is not imputed. So when we have a law, all it can do is show me that I've failed to keep God's righteous standard. And when I fail to do that, it is accredited because of something I did. I lied. I stole. I coveted. I blasphemed. Whatever it is, then God puts that to my account, and it's imputed to me. So that's what the law does. It imputes sin, and then not only does it impute sin, but it makes sin abound. 
It says that the law was added so that the offense might abound. So is the law contrary to the will of God? No, the law is holy, the law is just, and the law is good. But where sin abounds because of the law, grace superabounds. It goes beyond what the law does, and it gives us freedom under God's grace. Now, the Galatians had been bewitched. It's a very subtle term to bewitch somebody. It means to charm someone. It means to fascinate them with human logic. And Paul calls these people foolish. He uses that term twice in this passage. And the foolishness that I think Paul is expressing here is the foolishness of spiritual regression. We see this throughout the letter. If you read the letter as a whole, Paul over and over is marveling and he's dumbfounded at where these people started out and how they had strayed from that. In chapter 4, he says, you have turned from the gospel to weak and beggarly elements to which now you desire to be in bondage again to. He says, you didn't even know God. And you serve by nature things that are not God. And in chapter 5, he says, you ran well. You were doing really, really good in the Christian life. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion doesn't come from the one who called you. Then in chapter 6, he says, Circumcision nor uncircumcision avail anything but a new creation. And so this morning, the passage that we're looking at really explains to us the foolishness of spiritual regression. So if you had to sort of evaluate your own Christian life this morning and say, where was I a year ago today? How close was I to Jesus Christ? How close and how intimate was my relationship to Jesus? I would ask you to measure yourself and say, have I regressed? Am I as close to God as I once was? Where am I? Because it is so easy just to regress spiritually. When you take your hands off the steering wheel of a car, it's going to veer one way or the other, isn't it? It's just going to go into one ditch or the other. And the minute you and I take our hands off of our spiritual life and stay focused on God and where we're going spiritually, all it takes is a day, a week, a month. And we say, how did I get where I'm at? Where's that passion that I used to have? Where's my prayer life that I used to have? Where's my love for God's word? Where's my burden for lost people? Am I where I used to be? It's easy to regress. And Paul says this regression is foolish. It's utterly foolish. Because someone had bewitched them and they were no longer obeying the truth. Truth is objective. It's something that I can measure my walk by. And the first thing that Paul says here, who bewitched you from not obeying the truth 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ, and I like the old King James, it says, was evidently set before you, crucified. Paul made no bones about who Jesus was and what he did and what he accomplished on the cross. The words that's translated, evidently set before you, is a compound word in the original language. It's got a preposition, which means before, and that's the preposition pro. And then the second part of that verb is graphic. Pro-grapho. It means to placard something on a billboard. It means to paint a picture so clear and so vivid that it is unmistakable. You think about who Christ is and the foolishness of spiritual regression. And Paul says the remedy for that is keeping the cross of Jesus Christ evidently set before your spiritual eyes. I know when I get cold and when I start walking away from my Savior, I have forgotten the cost of my sin. That Christ bore our sins in His body on the cross. Paul made it his practice wherever he went not to stray from the message of the cross. To the Corinthians he said this, I preach Christ crucified. He says in chapter 2, he says, I knew nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24, the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. The Jews are requiring signs. Greeks were seeking after wisdom. But to those who saved, the cross is the power of God. The cross is the wisdom of God. And he says, look out among you. Is there any, many, many wise people? Are there any of noble birth? Are there any people of a financial influence? He says, no, because God has chosen the weak things. God has chosen to despise things. God has chosen the things that are not because of the cross. And so what does the cross do for you and I? It keeps us from spiritual regression because the cross keeps us humble. The cross keeps us foolish. The cross keeps us weak. And we are totally dependent on Jesus Christ because of the cross. And Paul says, oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you and said that you don't need the cross? Who bewitched you and told you that the cross was not sufficient? The cross is totally sufficient. It is all you and I need. The cross says it all. Then he sort of baits them with verse 2. He says, if I can get you to admit this one point that I have got you, this only do I want to learn from you. Paul was very well schooled in rhetoric and logic and debate. And he's setting them up 
with this message, with this, this point right here. If they can concede this one, then they've got to concede that these Judaizers, these bewitchers, that they are out to lunch. And Paul knows that, and so he sets them up. He says, I only want to learn this from you. Where did you receive the Spirit? How did you receive the Spirit? Did you hear it by, did you get it through the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Now, that's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is the only way to receive the Holy Spirit is through faith in Christ alone. And when they admit that, he says, okay, now I've got you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to your personal experience. You Galatians know this. When I came to you and I preached the gospel to you, what did it take for you to receive the Holy Spirit? Jesus said this in John chapter 7. It was at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the great feast of the Jews. and They were remembering their journey through the wilderness. And part of that journey through the wilderness was the rock that gave water, that gave that life. And so on the great day of the feast, the very last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the high priest would walk through the city of Jerusalem and he would go to a well and he would carry a pitcher back to the temple and he would say, out of the wells of water, God has brought forth salvation. And before the priest could do that, Jesus preempted him and he stood up and he cried out with a great voice and he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. For out of his belly, as the scripture has said, will flow rivers of living water. And this he said concerning the Spirit, that those who believe would receive. Any teaching that says that you need a second work of grace in order to get the Holy Spirit is false teaching. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive the Spirit. You don't need to do anything extra. You don't need to try to work it up inside of you. You don't need to try to emote it. You have got it. I started to tell you a story about a church that I went to when I was a college student, but I'll save that for another day. They kept telling me I needed a a second work of the Holy Spirit, but... um, I didn't. I had the Holy Spirit. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his, right? How do you receive the Spirit? And so they had to concede on this point. We must be born of the Spirit. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that you must be born regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's a gift from God. God is Spirit. If I'm going to relate to God, I must relate to God in my inner spirit. It is my spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And so Paul says, this is the way you began it. You began an experience with God. You began a relationship with God because God regenerated you. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, Titus 3, 5 but by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's the way we begin the Christian life. So Paul is shifted from the cross being evidently sent before you, now to how did you receive the Spirit? And he's got them. And so now he gives another question in verse 3. Are you 
so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Now, every one of us, when we get saved, still has our unregenerated flesh hanging around. Don't you just wish it was gone? What a day that will be when my Savior I will see. Oh, just to get rid of this unregenerated flesh. And to think that I could somehow get to spiritual maturity through my unregenerated flesh, that is human effort, what a foolish concept. And yet we do that all the time. We put artificial standards on people in our churches. We do it to ourselves and we condemn ourselves because we're not living up to what somebody else expects of us. That is a foolish way of thinking. The flesh, the unredeemed part of you and I in Romans chapter 8, it says this, in my flesh dwells no good thing. So how do I grow? How do I reach that perfection then if I've got this unregenerated flesh and I start in the spirit, this is how I do it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13 through 14. I, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. That unregenerated Patrick, that unregenerated whoever you are this morning, how do I get that victory? It's not by my human effort. It's Christ on the cross crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. In the life that you now live in your flesh, you live by the faith of the Son of God who loved you and who gave yourself for you. So you take yourself and you nail him to the cross and said, I died when Jesus died. I received the Spirit when I believed. And I, by the Holy Spirit, now I put to death those deeds of my body. That's how you and I run the Christian life. That's how you and I progress in the Christian life. And they had regressed. And you and I can regress in the same way. And then he's got one more question for them. I mean, Paul is hammering these guys with question after question. Verse 4, his final question. Well, it's not his final question, but his, his final question in, the, in his first point that they had left the foundation of the Christian life. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Excuse me, just a second. Oh, boy. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> I remember um, I was... Uh, it's weird how your memory works, you know. <laughs> I was uh, a lot younger, and um, my daughter was singing, Make Me a Servant. And I, had, I was mic'd up. And when I tell you, when, when your kids are little and they start singing to Jesus, you just start crying. <laughs> and I was in this big church, Burnett Ferry Baptist Church in Rome, Georgia. And she was, my little girl was up here singing, make me a servant. And I didn't know my mic was on. And man, I mean, I was, you could hear all over the church though. I mean, when I started sobbing, <laughs> it reminded me of that just now. That was a little bit more spiritual. This was just, just a, 
excuse me this morning. Okay. Have you suffered so many things in vain? Now, the word suffer has two ideas. One of them literally means to suffer or to go through persecution or hard trials. So let's get our heads into the Galatian church. What is Paul's message to the Galatians? Why were people trying to Judaize them? What was Peter trying to avoid when he got up and he withdrew himself when a group of Jews came? He didn't want people to persecute him, right? He didn't want people to think less of him. He wanted the Jews to think good of him. And these Gentiles, they were learning that, hey, you know what? We don't have to adopt any of this stuff. We're just as accepted by God, and that's an offense. Paul says, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I then persecuted? He says, if you suffered so many things in vain, have you accepted this beautiful message of grace for nothing and got ridiculed and got scoffed at, and now you just want to forsake all of that? just so that you could have a comfortable Christian life? He says, don't do that. You're actually regressing when you do that. You're backpedaling. You're walking away from the message of the gospel. The other thing that this word suffer means, it means to experience through difficult trials. And so I think this word has both of those meanings. They, were, they had experienced some certain things, and now Paul's saying, were, was all of that in vain? And what they had experienced earlier in their life was a life without God. And when you go back to rules, and you go back to regulations, and you go back to ritualism, you are actually going back to a life without God. You're not experiencing the personal relationship with God. You can go through all of the motions you want to, but you are missing the relationship with God. And here's the danger. When you walk the Christian life long enough, you know the talk, you know what's expected of you, and you know the right answers. And this is a danger for every one of us. And we've got to go back and remember where we were without Jesus. And he says, have you experienced all of this? And now you're going back to a life without a relationship with Jesus. The danger that I face almost every Sunday is coming to a text that I'm familiar with. And I can preach it in my own power and my own flesh. And you know what? It's absolutely powerless when we do that. And that's what the Galatians were doing. The second point that Paul wants to make is the foolishness of leaving the power of the Christian life. So they had left the very foundation, Christ crucified, receiving the Holy Spirit, all those things that they had experienced without Christ. And now he says, 
in verses 5 and 6, the foolishness of leading the power of the Christian life. Where's the power source? What is it that really moves God? What is it that saves the unregenerated? What is it that, that brings miracles in our lives? If it, if it was anything other than Christ and his power, you know what we'd do? We would set up an entire religious system merely to accomplish human works and self-indulgence. This really flies in the face of, of all the prosperity and all the other false gospels. Yesterday, Brother Dan told us a story, a true story about a pastor in Colombia who for nearly 20 years did everything he could to see a church grow. And that church never grew beyond about 20 people. And so he and his wife got before God and said, God, we've done everything we know to do. And, and, and God, it's time for us to do something else. We still love you, Lord. We still want to serve you, but we're not going to be a pastor. I'm not going to be a pastor, and she's not going to be a pastor's wife. We're, we're walking away from that. But, and after they got done praying, he looked at his wife. He says, well, what did the Lord speak to you about? And she said, we can't do this. God has called us. And he looked at his wife. He says, this is what God spoke to me. He says, you've been doing it your way long enough. Now let me do it my way. And Dan told us that that church went from 20 people to now a church of 35,000 that has service after service after service after service. And this is what Paul is saying in here. He's saying, you guys knew all about God. Then you came to know God. And rather, you came to be known by God. And now you've turned back to weak, beggarly, ABC elements in which you desire to be bondage again. You're observing days. You're observing weeks. You're observing months. You're observing years. That's all the Jewish calendar. And it's doing absolutely nothing. How is it that God works mightily among you? How is it that God empowers you for ministry? It's by faith. That book that we gave out to the church, Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire, that was Jim Cimbala's message in a, in, in a nutshell. It is on our knees before God and experiencing God in a real way. And so Paul is, again, using their experience. But here's where Paul counterbalances that. Because I don't want a church and I don't want Christianity just based on my experience. I want my experience to match sound doctrine. If my experience doesn't match sound doctrine, you need to throw that experience out. And Paul juxtapositions your experience with Bible. How is it that God works miracles? How does God supply the Spirit? And then he says, just as Abraham believed God. He says, I'm going to take you now to the Bible. And I'm going to give you sound biblical doctrine. How did God do those incredible things in the life of Abraham? This is Bible doctrine, he says, you Galatians. And you listen good. 
He says, when he left and he forsook Ur the Chaldees, that was God telling him to obey. When he left his kindred, when he left his family, that was Abraham obeying Scripture, obeying the voice of God. When Abraham went out and looked at those stars, he says, so will your seed be. That was Bible doctrine. Now, how does God do that? How does God produce those miracles? How did God give him Isaac? It wasn't because he worked it out in his own flesh. In fact, we see later on in the book of Galatians what happens when we try to work out the Christian life in our flesh. We make a mess of it, don't we? Abraham sure did with Hagar and with Ishmael. What does it mean to supply the Spirit? The Greek word is choreograph. Now, the Greek definition is very similar to the English definition. I'll just give you the Greek definition. It means to furnish and supply at one's own expense. So it's God who furnishes and supplies everything that you and I need. It means to supply everything for a chorus or a dance. Isn't that interesting? That's the, that's the Greek word, and that's the word that Paul chose to use here. Who is the one who's choreographing everything? Who is the one who's ministering, who's setting it all up and supplying it? Here's the English definition of a choreograph. It means the one who composes and supplies all the steps and all the moves for the dance performance. So kind of picture this. Who is the one who does that in our lives? Who performs and supplies and sets up every single dance where it's perfectly choreographed? That's Almighty God. I think about how God has choreographed the growth and the, the, the influx of new people to this church. This is God. And how does God do it? He doesn't do it by a great orator. He doesn't do it by some wonderful worship band because we struggle every Sunday to what are we going to do and how's it going to fit together and that's not how God does it. If it is, then it's all in the flesh anyway and it's all going to crumble and it's not going to mean anything. God choreographs it by the Spirit and how does God energize us for ministry? He does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you a little story about how I met my wife. And it was all by the power of God and through prayer. Not because I was an answer to prayer. I was probably more of a curse. <laughs> but my, my, my poor little wife grew up, no, not poor, she was blessed. She was blessed to grow up eight miles above the Arctic Circle in a village called Fort Yukon. Now, how is God going to minister and supply a friend to somebody who lives in a village that only has access by air or by a canoe coming down the river? They went back to their home, and their home had been completely inundated by a flood. I mean, literally, there was six feet of water downtown Fort Yukon. It's on the confluence of two really mighty rivers. One is the Black River. The other is the Yukon River. And the village is right at the apex of those two rivers. And one river usually breaks up the ice flow before the other river. 
But this particular year, it was, it was extremely cold. I mean, 70 below. Ice chunks in that river that were five to six feet thick began to break up and to flow out at both rivers simultaneously. So when those two, the confluence of those two rivers came together, you had an ice jam, and it produced a dam. And both rivers began to back up into that city. That's what her family went back to. And she's thinking to herself as a 17-year-old teenager in this dirty, dusty village that's almost like on the backside of nowhere, cleaning mud and silt. Nothing works. The refrigerator, everything's broken. Her piano that she loved toppled over, caked in mud, taking an axe to it, destroying it because it's not good for anything. And so she's having this pity party. What am I doing here? I could have been back in North Carolina hanging out with my friends. And her mom and dad look at her and said, let's go out to the garage. He's out there cleaning up a snow machine, trying to get this thing winterized, trying to get it ready. And Becky says, let's pray for a summer friend. And Tracy's just kind of laughing. She goes, who in the world is going to be this little girl, a nobody, but God cares about? And how did God minister? It was because God is a powerful God who ministers the Spirit, a God who works miracles, dunamin, God who does mighty things, and He doesn't do it by the works of the law. There isn't some kind of formula. There isn't some kind of recipe that I can give you today to see God work in your life. How does God do it? Why would we ever forsake the power of the Christian life for something that never can deliver anyway? There is no substitute than falling on your face before God and taking God at faith. You read the Gospels. It's everywhere. The centurion's servant came to Jesus and he says, I'm not even worthy to come under, have you come under my roof. You just speak the word. And Jesus said, when I saw that kind of faith, I marveled. The woman who said, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I know I'll be made well. She didn't say, if I just follow these rules, if I do this 10-step series. No, she said, none of that. If I just touch Jesus, I'll be made well. He turned around, he says, your faith has made you whole. How is it that God does it, O foolish Galatians? The power of God, the energizing for work and ministry, He is the source of all things. And then he uses Abraham as a doctrinal support who forsook Ur, who left his kindred, left his family, inherited lands, and had the miraculous conception of Isaac. And because of that, he received complete righteousness. Righteousness isn't something we earn. It's nothing we merit. It is imputed. The Christian growth isn't something we merit. It's not something we earn. It's something that we delve into by faith and we walk with God. Righteousness is 100% God imputing, putting it into our account, but believing 
That is our responsibility. This is how we receive from God. This is how we begin the Christian life. This is how we experience God in reality in every day. And this is how you and I are perfected and we mature. The foolishness of regression. Don't leave your foundation. Stay grounded in the Scripture. Keep the crucifixion before your eyes. Call on God and believe Him. Walk with God in humility. Be willing to be a fool by this world's standard in order that you might be wise by God's standard. Be willing to be weak by this world's standard so that God might empower you. Remember where you were before you experienced God. Don't leave the power of the Christian life for something that can't supply. God ministers the Spirit. God empowers for ministry. God accomplishes all His eternal blessings through the power of faith. The foolishness of spiritual regression. Father, this morning we are going to keep the crucifixion evidently set before us. God, this is a monthly reminder when we take the Lord's Supper that it is Christ crucified. Lord, that there is nothing in us that merits salvation. That Christ needs to be placard before our eyes. That He bore every one of our sins. And as Philippians 1, 6 says, that He who began a good work in us He will bring it to completion through Jesus Christ. Lord God, today, as we observe this church tradition, this ordinance, this command, Father, I pray that we will internalize the truth that every one of my sins was...